Welcome to the Adorning the Dark podcast. My name is Ken. Uh, the Adorning the Dark podcast is a place where we talk about Christian creativity in the light of being biblically faithful. And we're busy going through a series where we look at various books in the Bible and their use of creativity. Uh, today we're going to be looking at the book of Job. So, we're going to be looking at the book of Job today. And... Uh, Let's break it down a little. The book of Job is a book of the Ketuvim, or the writing sections of the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, and it is the first poetic book in the Old Testament of the Christian Bible, addressing the problem of theodicy, the vindication and the justice of God in the light of humanity's suffering. It is a rich theological work setting out a variety of perspectives, and it's been widely praised for its literary qualities, with Lord with Alfred Lord Tennyson calling it the greatest poem of ancient and modern times. The book of Job consists of pro, a prose prologue and an epilogue narrative framing poetic dialogues and monologues. It is common to view the narrative frame as the original core of the book, enlarged later by the poetic dialogues and discourses and sections of the book such as the Elu speeches and the wisdom part of chapter 28 and the late insertions. But recent trends have tended to concentrate the book's underlying editorial unity. The prologue in two scenes, the first on earth and the second in heaven, that's Job 1 and 2. Job's opening monologue in Job 3, seen by some scholars as a bridge between the prologue and the dialogues in the other, by the others at the beginning of the other dialogues, and the three cycles of dialogues between Job and his three friends. The third cycle is not complete, the expected speech of Zophar being replaced by the wisdom poem of chapter 28. The first cycle, which is Job 4 and 5, is Eliphaz's talking and Job's response in Job 6 and 7, Bildad in 8 and Job's response in 9 and 10, Zophar in 11 and Job's response in 12 to 14. The second cycle, Eliphaz in chapter 15, Job's response in 16 and 17, Bildad in 18, Job's response in 19, Zophar in 20, Job's response in Job 21. Then the third cycle, which is Eliphaz in chapter 22, Job's response in chapter 23 and 24, Bildad in 25, and Job's response in 26 and 27. Then there are the three monologues, a poem to wisdom, chapter 28, previously read as part of the speech of Job, now regarded by most scholars as a separate interlude in the narrator's voice. Job's closing monologue, chapters 29 and 31, and Elihu's speeches, chapters 32 to 37. And then there are two speeches by God, chapters 38, 1 to 42, and, and then also 46 to 41, 34, 42, 7 to 8, with Job's responses. And then there's an epilogue of Job's restoration, which is chapters 42, verse 9 to 17. Contents. The prologue on earth introduces Job as a righteous man, blessed with wealth, sons and daughters, who lives in the land of Az, or Uz. The scene shifts to heaven where God asks the Satan, the accuser, for his opinion on Job's piety. Satan answers that Job is only pious because God has blessed him. God were to take away everything that Job has, he would surely curse God. God gives Satan permission to take Job's wealth and kill his children and servants, but Job nevertheless praises God. Naked I came out of my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord has given, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
God allows Satan to inflict his body with boils. Job still sits in ashes, and his wife prompts him to curse God and die. But Job answers, Shall we receive good from God and we not receive evil? Then there are the opening monologues between Job and his three friends. Job laments. Again, we're getting back to lamenting, as we've been talking about quite a bit recently. The day of his birth, that he would like to die. Even that is denied him. His three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Narmalite. Sorry if I butcher those words. Console him. The friends do not waver in their belief that Job's suffering is a punishment for sin, for God causes no one to suffer innocently. And they advise him to repent and seek God's mercy. Job responds with scorn. His antelope is a miserable comforters. The Vulgate Latin consolorates onerosi. Since God, a just God would not treat him so harshly. Patience in suffering is impossible. And the Creator should not take his creatures so lightly to come against them with such force. Job responds represent one of the most radical restatements of Israelite theology in the Hebrew Bible. He moves away from the pious attitude as shown in the prologue and begins to berate God for the disproportionate wrath against him. He sees God as, amongst others, intrusive and suffocating, unforgiving and obsessed with destroying a human target, angry, fixated on punishment, hostile and destructive. He then shifts his focus from the injustice that he himself suffers to God's governance of the world. He suggests that the wicked have taken advantage of the needy and the helpless, who remain in significant hardship, but God does nothing to punish them. The three monologues, the poem to wisdom, Job's closing monologue, and Eliud's speeches. The dialogues of Job and his friends are followed by a poem, the hymn to wisdom. On the inaccessibility of wisdom, where is wisdom to be found, it asked, and conclude that it has been hidden from man. Chapter 28. Job contrasts his previous fortune with his present plight, an outcast, mocked and in pain. He protests his innocence, lists the principles he has lived by, and demands that God answer him. Elihu, a character not previously mentioned, intervenes to state that wisdom comes from God, who reveals it through dreams and visions to those who will then declare their knowledge. <coughs> God speaks from a whirlwind. His speeches neither explain Job's suffering nor defend divine justice nor enter into the courtroom confrontation that Job has demanded, nor respond to his oath of innocence. Instead, they contrast Job's weakness with divine wisdom and omnipotence. Where were you when I laid the mountains of the earth? Job makes a brief response, but God's monologue resumes, never addressing Job directly. In 42 verses 1-6, to Job makes that his final response, confessing God's power, and that his own lack of knowledge of things beyond me, which I do not know, Previously he has only heard, but now his eyes have seen God, and therefore he retracts and repents in dust and ashes. The epilogue, God tells Eliphaz that he and the other two friends have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has done. The three are told to make a burnt offering with Job as their intercessor, for only him will I show favor. Job is restored to health, riches, and family, and lives to see his children to a fourth generation right a bit of the composition job appears in the sixth century book of ezekiel as a man of antiquity renowned for his righteousness the book of job was apparently chosen as the legendary hero of this parable rabbinic tradition ascribes it to moses 
as writing it, but scholars generally agree that it's written between the 7th and 4th centuries BCE, with the 6th century BC as the most likely period for various reasons. The anonymous author was certainly an Israelite, although he has set his story outside of Israel, in southern Edom or northern Arabia, making allusions to places far apart as Mesopotamia and Egypt. The language of Job stands out for its conservative spelling, an exceptionally large number of words and forms not found elsewhere in the Bible. The 12th century scholar Ibn Ezra concluded that the book must have been written in some other language and translated into Hebrew. And many late scholars down the 20th century looked for an Aramaic, Arabic or Edomite original, but close analysis suggests that the foreign words and foreign-looking forms are literally affectations designed to lend authenticity to the book's distant setting. Job exists in numerous forms, the Hebrew Masoretic text, which underlies many modern Bible translations, the Greek Sepuchant, made in Egypt in the last centuries of the BCE, and the Aramaic and Hebrew manuscripts found amongst the Dead Sea, souls, Dead sea Scrolls. Sorry. Uh, Job, Ecclesiastes, and the Book of Proverbs belong to the genre of wisdom literature, sharing a perspective that they call themselves the Way of Wisdom. Wisdom means both a way of thinking and a body of knowledge gained through such thinking, as well as the ability to apply it to life. It is attainable in part through human effort and in part as a gift from God, but never its entirety except by God. Three books share attitudes and assumptions but differ in their conclusions. Proverbs makes confident statements about the world and its workings that are flatly contradicted by Job and Ecclesiastes. I love that. Wisdom literature from Sumeria and Babylonia can be dated to the 2nd millennium BCE. Several texts from Mesopotamia and Egypt offer parallels to Job. And while it is impossible to tell whether the author of Job was influenced by any of them, their existence suggests that there was a, he was the recipient of a long tradition of reflection on the existence of inexplainable suffering. Right, so we're going to go down lastly to the themes of Job. Job is an investigation on the problem of divine justice. This problem, known in theology as the problem of evil, can be rephrased as a question, why do the righteous suffer? The conventional answer in ancient Israel was that God rewards virtue and punishes sin, the principle known as retributive justice. This assumes a world in which human choices and actions are morally significant, but experience demonstrates that suffering is frequently unmerited, the biblical concept of righteousness was rooted in the covenant-making God who had ordered creation for communal well-being. And the righteous were those who invested in the community, showing special concern for the poor and needy, seen Job's description of his life in chapter 31. Their antithesis were the wicked who were selfish and greedy. The Satan, or the adversary, raised the question of whether or not there was such a thing as a dis interested righteousness if god rewards righteousness with prosperity men will not act righteously from selfish motives he asked god to test this by removing the prosperity of job the most righteous of all of god's servants the book begins with the frame narrative giving the reader an omniscient god's eye perspective which introduces job as a man of exemplary faith and piety blameless and upright who fears God, shuns evil. The contrast between the frame and the poetic dialogues and the monologues, in which God, Job never learns of the opening scenes in heaven, 
or the reason for his suffering. But it creates a sense of dramatic irony between the divine view of the adversary's wager and the human view of Job's suffering, without any reason. In the poetic dialogues, Job's friends see his suffering and assume he must be guilty, since God is just. Job, knowing he is innocent, concludes that God must be unjust. He retains his piety throughout the story, belying Satan's suspicious that his righteousness is due to the expectation of reward, but makes clear from his first speech that he agrees with his friends that God should and does reward righteousness. Elihu rejects the arguments of both parties. Job is wrong to accuse God of injustice, as God is greater than human beings. And his friends are not correct, for suffering, far from being a punishment, may rescue the afflicted from their afflictions and make them more amenable to revelation, literally open their eyes or open their ears. In chapter 28, the hymn of wisdom introduces another theme, divine wisdom. The hymn does not place any emphasis on retributive justice, stressing instead the inaccessibility of wisdom. Wisdom cannot be invented or purchased. It says God alone knows the meaning of the world. He grants it only to those who live in reverence before him. God possesses wisdom because he grasps the complexities of the world, a theme which looks forward to God's speech in chapters 38 to 41 and repeated refrain, Where were you when? When God finally speaks, he neither explains the reason for Job's suffering, revealed to the reader in the prologue in heaven, nor defends his justice. The first speech focuses on his role in maintaining order in the universe. The list of things that God does and Job cannot do demonstrate divine wisdom because order is the heart of wisdom. Job then confesses his lack of wisdom, meaning his lack of understanding of the workings of the cosmos and the ability to maintain it. The second speech concerns God's role in controlling the behemoth and the leviathan, sometimes translated as the hippopotamus and the crocodile, but properly representing primeval cosmic creatures, either in either case, demonstrating God's wisdom and power. Job's reply to God's final speech is longer than his first and more complicated. The usual view that he admits to being wrong to challenge God and now repents in dust and ashes. But the Hebrew is difficult and alternative understanding says that Job, Job said he was wrong to repent and mourn and does not retract any of his arguments. The concluding part of the frame narrative, God restores and increases his prosperity, indicating that the divine policy on reproductive justice remains unchanged. You're listening to the Adorn in the Dark podcast. We're available on Spotify and Anchor. You can join the conversation at www.facebook.com forward slash So here's a little thought from the Bible Project, from their blog, um, real takeaway about Job. A helpful way of understanding the book of Job was offered by a Jewish scholar named Matsyayu Sevat, who proposed that the book is exploring three claims made about God and Job, but only two can be true at the same time. God is just and good. God's character compels him to act justly for the good of others. The retribution principle... God has ordered the world so that good deeds are rewarded and evil deeds are punished. 
three, Job's innocence. Job has done nothing wrong and deserves to deserve his suffering. The argument of Job's friend is that God is good, which means that God has altered the moral universe to run by the retribution principle on account. Job's suffering, therefore, must be the result of some evil for which he's been punished. Job's argument is that he's done nothing wrong to warrant the suffering as punishment, and we the readers know he's right. The author said so in Job 1 verse 1, and God said Job is innocent in 2 verse 3. Job also holds, too, that God runs the world by means of the retribution principle, which leads him to brink of an awful conclusion. Maybe God is not just or good. Or even worse, maybe God is incompetent in running the universe. Job and his friends run around and around in the hamster wheel in their dialogues for 24 chapters, never coming to any resolution about their debate, which opens up the possibility they're all wrong. Perhaps God is just and good, and Job is innocent. Maybe what needs to be examined is their assumption that all suffering is a form of divine punishment, and that all abundance is a form of reward. This is the real focus of the book of Job. And you can see how the heavenly scene of Job 1-2 sets up perfectly to focus on these difficult theological and ethical issues. The character of Satan has no power over Job or God. He's like a cardboard cutout character in the story. His only role is to raise the questions that are the real focus of the book. Those questions are highlighted for us in the dialogues of Job and his friends, but never resolved. It's only the central poem of Job 28 and God's speeches that we discover the real message of the book. So, Job... It's a difficult one and what does it mean for us as christians and what does it mean for us as creators well i think it opens up first of all the language is incredibly rich and dense and beautiful and but it opens up the ability for us to start asking questions um you know the the entire circle of job is that it it is this hamster wheel of of blame and hamster wheel of defending innocence and people pointing out uh, faults and having these these large discussions and you know one of the things that i find really good is that god never justifies why any of the things happen to job which i think is is quite a a powerful statement you know, by God, you know, he's, he doesn't have to answer and ask for, for why we go through things. It's, it builds into the New Testament narrative that, you know, it's not your good works or not getting you where you need to go. Um, and it allows us as creatives to start musing whether we, we sing right to start asking those questions, you know, you know, to raise the questions of, why is the world broken? Why, why is, why do the, the just, or why do the people who are good, why are they punished? Why does God feel distant? Why does it feel like um, nothing ever, ever kind of is fair? You know, it's easy when we are in places of, of everything going right to just assume that God is with us. It's very easy for us to go to, to be in places where life is terrible and to think God isn't with us. You know, but I think as creators we have this this almost duty, I believe, to, to explain 
or to, to come up with ways to, to kind of ask these questions, start these conversations about who God is, what his character is like, what life is like, how, how good it is and how bad it is and, and use these narratives and frameworks to really discuss these things. You're listening to the Adorning the Dark podcast. We're available on Spotify and Anchor. You can join the conversation at www.facebook.com forward slash Adorning the Dark podcast. You've been listening to the Adorning the Dark podcast. I hope you've enjoyed our look at the book of Job. Join us as we move forward, going through other books in the Bible. We will be conducting a few interviews shortly with Christian creatives. Um, Yeah, enjoy it. Have a good day. God bless.